following is a special presentation of The World Tomorrow with Herbert W. Armstrong. I speak as a voice crying out in the 20th century wilderness of religious confusion showing what is soon coming on this world. The subject of Armageddon and the end of the world has been appearing in the public press more or less often in the last 25 years. The disciples asked Jesus Christ for a sign of his second coming and the end of the world. And he replied, as you find in Matthew 24 and verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Believe it or not, he was speaking of this very program. Did you ever go to Petra? I've never been to Petra. I've never been to Petra. That was the whole deal. Like, there was a, we're definitely going to a place of safety. But I was like, go live in a cave. I don't know. I was thinking like, you know, like a spaceship or a, a weather balloon, the moon, something, something cool. But from what I understand, this is more than just a cave. This is one of the, the stone archaeological wonders of the world. There's statues and frescoes. I've never been. you got to tell me what it's like. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's a scene where they go into the temple where eventually they find the Holy Grail and that the entrance to that That's Petra? is Petra, yeah. If there's going to be some like crazy post-apocalyptic Jesus coming down from heaven, it's got to be in a place like that for sure. The idea was we're going to go live in the caves of Petra for three and a half years and then Jesus was going to come back and set things right. It was imminent. Any moment, um, things are about to be over unless you got your act right. I was a true believer. You're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nicholas Vanderkolk. Today's episode, The World Tomorrow, featuring Glenn Washington. supremacist uh, doomsday cult I think a, a lot of a lot of my work in general a lot of my storytelling is trying to answer that question how do you get into the be in the middle of a white supremacist Jesus cult they didn't lead with the uh, the white supremacy aspect of it that was something that uh, that came out once you got more into the theology when I was 11 years old, I was uh, sitting in church next to my buddy, and the pastor starts talking about the story of the flood that you don't know, the secret story of the flood. Noah, God tells him he's got to go and make this ark, and Noah starts doing it because Noah's faithful, and then animals start filing in two by two. Cool. People are still partying, being sinful, Noah gets in the ark with his wife and his three kids. The rains come down for 40 days and 40 nights. The ship sails for a year. And finally, it stops 
and it's, the world is clean and it's new. It's free of sin. All this sin has been washed away by this flood that was sent by the Lord. And then Noah gets out and he's so happy. He's so happy. He does a dance of joy to the Lord and finally falls down exhausted. And when he falls down exhausted, brethren, that's when the bad thing happens. One of his sons, one of his sons who was on that boat with him, one of his sons defiles him, does something evil to his body when he is in a sense of slumber. It is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And when the Lord found out about it, when Noah woke up, the Lord cursed that son, cursed him. And brethren, brethren, you can see the effects of that curse here today. Because that curse is the color of a black man's skin. Because they are the descendants of the person, of the son, who committed that evil deed against Noah. Now, that's what I heard. I was 11 or 12 years old. through your mind when you when you hear that i'm thinking it's bullshit but again i'm 11 i'm 12 i don't i, I don't i don't have my a, a conception of the bible i don't feel like enough of authority to be able to push back as much as my feelings want me to here's the dirty thing this is the secret part is that as pernicious and evil an impact that the lie of white superiority has on white people. It has an even more dire impact on black people because black people believe it too. And that was the case. That was the, the organization. A lot of the black people would believe something like that. And they would pass on that sense of <sighs> inferiority on to the next generation. You know, even now I feel sometimes that me fighting that feel like you're shadow boxing. On one hand, I grew up with these people. I grew up in a very crazed religious, well, mostly white community. And so nothing like that to put a lie to the, to any idea of white superiority of any type. <laughs> it was complete madness. But these ideas, um, it's deeply baked into the American psyche. And this is just one manifestation of it. I think that I grew up in an extreme manifestation of it. But again, the dirty little secret is that as much as Whites believe white superiority. A lot of blacks believe it too. The theology is like this. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's, this, this is going to be hard for even come out of my head. The head of the church, this guy Herbert W. Armstrong, there's a passage in 
Genesis about Noah. The Lord calls Noah perfect in his generations. And what that means has been argued by a lot of different people for a lot of different ways. But what the head of our church said that meant was that he was the holder of a pure white genetic lineage. And the pure white genetic lineage. <laughs> okay, so this is what this I'm 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 try, I'm gonna do the best I can because it doesn't make a lot of sense. It didn't make any sense to me then. Doesn't make any sense to me now. Somehow, like this guy Herbert W. Armstrong was a recipient of this unbroken strain of pure white genetic lineage, and somehow he traced his heritage to the House of Windsor. And through the House of Windsor, he traced his lineage back to Jesus. And from Jesus, he traced it back to Noah. And from Noah, he traced it back to Adam. It was this pure, unbroken white strain that resulted in the head of our organization, Herbert W. Armstrong. Now, what I did speak to my father, my parents, about, I was like, that don't make no goddamn sense. And my father, to his credit, said, yes, this is stupid. We wrote a biblical research paper and sent it in to headquarters of our church in Pasadena, California, because all good cults are based in California. We sent it in there. They said there were this August group of biblical scholars was going to get back to us and they eventually sent us a form letter. But that was kind of the beginning of the end for me, actually. I just thought that the racial thing was insane. And now, this is a recent revelation to myself. I think had it not been for this extreme racist aspect of that church, if I didn't have to confront it so directly, so personally, as a black person, that I might have stayed in it longer than I did. In that sense, I'm almost happy that the racism forced me out. I think that might be the first time that I've ever heard someone find some some silver lining in, in racism. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it was a hard one. And I, I tell these stories to my kids and they're like, what in the world are you talking about? This is mad crazy. And it is mad crazy. And I want them to think it is crazy because it is. And it is hard to go back and say what the silver linings are. But everything was so internalized. That sense of otherness of being an outsider, even though I was born into this group. Beyond the sort of the theology of it, how did the white supremacy or racism manifest itself? Were interracial relationships allowed within the group? No, no. And that was a big deal for me because I'm a young, young kid. I'm heterosexual male, like the ladies. Love brown ladies in my area, there weren't any. So at one point, there's a, there's a church camp. Go away for three weeks for this church camp. I think it was 14 or 15. And they have a dance. Now, they pull you aside and they tell you, you're not allowed to dance 
with anybody, and you're not allowed to sit next to a, a girl of another race. And I'm just like, what, really? I mean, I know I heard it, I know y'all said it, but how can this really be? I'm there, there might be three other black girls, and there's like, you know, hundreds of white people. I'm sitting there looking stupid, kind of going, this stinks, this is not for me. And the cutest, most darling, beautiful girl, white girl, comes up to me and asks me if I want to dance. I thought, well, it's kind of dark. And if I kind of bend down a little bit and we get right in the middle of the, of the group, maybe I can pull this off. Which I try. And no, I do not pull this off. It takes all of about 15 seconds before I get a tap on the shoulder. And I get called the back room, the office, and get the scolding of how deep... <laughs> I'm out there defiling this this white girl, and it, and I should know better, and it's wrong, and they need to they need to call my parents and all this kind of stuff. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, it was dark. I didn't know exactly who was who and what was what. <laughs> did Did you ever keep your your personal history a secret as an adult, or or were you always upfront about it? No, this is the thing. It's like I was an outsider within that group that I grew up in, but I was very much in the group. But as a black kid, you, you just kind of, you kind of on the edges of it. And then when I realized I was, I was leaving, I had to go away and I wanted to build a life outside of it. I was, I was gonna go to college and I go, and I'm an, I'm an alien on top of an alien. I had to fake normalcy. Like I had never, been to a birthday party. Birthday parties were not allowed. You couldn't celebrate your own birthday. And I didn't know what to do when all of a sudden people threw me a surprise party. I was petrified, confused. What is is happening? All the things that people take for granted in the United States, the prom, the, you know, homecoming, all that stuff. I didn't have any history of that. I didn't know any of that stuff. I didn't have a a high school experience that paralleled anyone because everything that we did, I had to be in church. I never went to a football game. I never asked a girl to dance. I never did any of that stuff. And I had to pretend like I was like everybody else. (laughs) I wanted all that to be the biggest secret ever. I do not lead with how you doing, darling. Um, I grew up in a cult, so I'm not sure how this step goes or what this dance is or what to say. It was almost like I was a, a middle schooler trying to pretend like he's a high school senior. Do you think there's there's any other secret that's had a bigger impact on your life? Um, yeah. Yeah. The thing that kind of drove my family, that just shaped all of our histories. When I was three years old, we're at my grandmother's house. One of my uncles got into an altercation with another one of my uncles over something, over treating my grandmother properly or something of this nature. And one of my uncles had a gun. told his brother to back off, told it to him again. His brother screaming at him, screaming at him, come on, do it, do it, do it, do it, you got the gun, do it. 
believe I'm under the table and one uncle shoots the other uncle and kills him. So my, my earliest memory is that. My second earliest memory is of my grandmother holding my hand saying, it's going to be okay, baby. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, baby. It's going to be okay. As tears are streaming down our face. <laughs> Even as a little kid, you know, when your grandma was crying, that it's going to be okay, that nothing's ever going to be okay. That incident in my grandmother's back room, that incident shaped everything. It gave the impetus for us to leave Detroit and leave my family behind. I was kind of ripped from that bosom of a big, warm family. It drove, I think, my parents to try to set up a a barrier between that family and us. The way they did it was through this wacky church. I wonder if we would have ever have been involved with all that craziness if the bullet missed. Or, you know, when something like that happens, you can trace the ramifications for generations. My uncle who, who pulled the trigger, he might as well have aimed it at himself because it took two lives. What I remember about most is like the sense of um, having to all of a sudden walk around eggshells around my grandmother. The sense to see the light go away. My grandmother was a lively, spirited, cantankerous person. And to see that, to see her suddenly shrunken was just weird and hard and as a kid, you're not, you don't, you don't have the vocabulary to understand what's going on when that, when that kind of thing goes on. It was ever present in all of our lives. It made me think of my own, like, what would it take for me to do that to my own brother? What, how can anyone ever get to that point? I'm mad at him, but can I ever do that? You question every single interaction under a new filter when that happens within your own family. Do I have it in me? Is this something I could do? Is this a rage thing in me? You know, when you see that in your family, it feels like there is nothing you can do to prepare for it. I'm really mad right now. Am I that mad? Am I out of control? Could I do something to somebody? Is this in me in this way? Am I crazy? Uh, Certainly some, some of my people have acted crazy in the past. Am I one of them? Am I immune? I'm stunned the white people that I grew up with don't recognize the extreme racist environment that we grew up in. We didn't really have any racism growing up. What? (laughs) What? 
we created books of white supremacist theology that were, are in fact used by Klan groups that came from our organization. A few years ago, we had a reunion of our youth group that I grew up with in church. I didn't want to go, I didn't want to go. <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, Mr. Storyteller, you don't want to go, this is a story. And what are you talking about? You're not going to go. So I was like, all right, get me a little plane ticket. I fly back to Michigan, get in the rental car, go up to the, the little hall. It's like somewhere outside of Lansing. It's, it's middle of winter. It's cold. It's this VFW hall. And, and I get there, and I'm standing outside, and I don't really want to go in. I'm like, oh, Lord, I do not want to go in here. I do not want to see these people. I do not want to do it. And I go in. I hear this, Glenn! Like, I was Norm from Cheers. The hug and the kiss and the, it's been a long time. This is a group of people, we've been through a war together. And it was so amazing seeing everybody. So amazing seeing these people I grew up with. At one point we go to sit down and the woman next to me, she's, you know, we're gonna have our little cream corn and mashed potatoes and our little chicken dinner, whatever it's gonna be. And the woman next to me, she lifts a glass to me and she said, can you believe we grew up in that cult. I was lifting my glass of toaster. And the woman directly across from us, she says, what cult? And the divide there was just like, we were like, are you serious? She's going to say, are you serious? It was just such an odd thing. Later I get up and I'm walking around, I'm talking to people, and I go to one woman who I haven't seen in forever. And we're talking, we're talking, we're talking. I knew she was very, very close to a youth minister. I asked her how he's doing. And she looked at me, and I swear to God, it was a millisecond. It was a millisecond. And I knew that relationship was not appropriate. And I just hugged her. And she cried, and she cried, and she cried. <sighs> I've since found out that over half of the women that I grew up with that were close to me in that organization were abused by someone in that organization as well. And I didn't know that. I never saw that. And it kills me that I was as blind to their pain as I'm saying they were blind to mine. I would, you know, he's just a stupid kid, but Jesus Christ. Oh, Glenn. Yeah, sucks. Truth, shitty. Um, I don't have the uh, psychological terminology for this, but I know that if you talk to anyone in the street, anyone, pick any person at random, and you ask them what their story is, more often than not, they're going to tell you a story of trauma. It's crazy. Look, what's your story? 
And if you really get a real answer out of them, it's a story of trauma. And it stops at a point of trauma. They will stop. Their, their story they're telling themselves about themselves stops in a point of trauma. So one of these days I'm going to write a, a book called Narrative Therapy because really that's all it is. It's like, how do you tell yourself your own story? How do you move past that trauma? I think one of the first things you got to do is decide what your story is and what you want your story to be. What do you want it to be? When I did get to like a university setting, it's like everyone goes home for Christmas. I wasn't going home for Christmas. I thought I was just going to stay my behind right there on campus and eat my little canned soup or whatever. One of my buddies, he heard I was going to stay. He's like, oh, no, you're not. You're coming home with me. I was like, okay. And I had my first Christmas. (laughs) And it's my first Christmas. I didn't realize later on how it might not be the most traditional Christmas of all. One of my best friends, still one of my best friends in the world. His family is from India and Pakistan. You know, they're going to have a Christmas curry. And everybody's going to be there. And everybody's going to fight and holler and yell and scream at each other. But everybody loves each other because that's the way they talk to each other. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not used to that. The, the, and the presents and the pajamas and the Christmas tree, the evil, evil Christmas tree that I grew up with, putting a Ganesha figurine on the Christmas tree at the top instead of a star. Even now, even today, I still put a Ganesha on my Christmas trees with my kids because I felt that warmth of that household. I'm I'm nobody's Hindu, but it was such a a different model of love and appreciation and family and holiday. I still get great joy from it. That's it for Love and Radio. This episode was produced by Andrew Gill, Nikki Stein, Phil Demahovsky, and our contributing editor, Stephen Jackson. It featured the voice, of course, of Glenn Washington. Glenn is the host of the essential radio and podcast show, Snap Judgment. Get it wherever you get your podcasts, or you can even listen to it on the actual for real radio, just like my grandparents used to before they all died. The music you heard on the show is from Kate N.V., Salt, Oliver Coates, Steve McLaughlin, Emily Sprague, Biosphere, and Lucene. For playlists of all the music we feature on the show, visit our website, loveandradio.org. Love and Radio is a fully independent production and made possible thanks to our supporters, with extra special thanks to Andrew Simmons, Casey Anderson, Dan Palmino, Jacqueline Leake, Jason V., Sam Huffman, Sandra Schroeder, and edging candy tuft 
to support the creation of the best audio in the podcast universe and get access to loads of perks, please consider becoming a member by going to loveandradio.org slash member. I'm Nicholas Vanderkolk. Thanks for listening. Our final song is The Eight of Space by Schneider TM. Space.